Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our copies of God's Word now, please. Let's open them together to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 20 today, just two verses, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's been a long time since we've been in the Gospel of John on Sunday morning here, but as I recall, some years ago we spent four years going verse by verse through it, and it was a great blessing to me, I hope to you. Each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the same story, but from four different perspectives. They have different uh, emphasis that they make on uh, the same events. It's very clear that one of John's most important emphasis is the deity of Jesus. He wants to make clear, as has already been said a number of ways this morning through song and vocalized, that Jesus is more than a man. He is God in the flesh. John got to a good start in the very first verse of his gospel when he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he went on to say that all things created by him and through him, and nothing has been created that has been created except through Christ. And so John is clearly emphasizing the deity of Jesus, but he waits until he gets to the 20th chapter, our text today, verses 30 and 31, to reveal the overarching purpose of his writing the gospel. And so let's read it now, John 20, 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. May the Lord add to his blessing the reading of the word. So he says there's three primary purposes of the gospel of John. Number one, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So John is unabashedly and unapologetically evangelistic. The book of John is essentially a very long gospel tract. And so when I am talking to people who don't seem to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, and they say to me, I've never read the Bible, I don't know where to start. I say, start in the gospel of John. Because in the gospel of John, you're going to be introduced to who Jesus is, what he did, and the reason why he came to the world. And so he says, I want you to believe that Jesus is Christ, that is the promised one, the Messiah of the Old Testament. But theologically, he's also unapologetic. He is very clear that Jesus is more than a man. He is the Son of God. And ultimately, the purpose of this message is that your life would be transformed, that you would have life. He is unapologetically concerned for souls. And so he says first, that you know that he's Christ, the promised one, the redeemer, the son of God, he's divine, God in the flesh, that you may have life, that is salvation. Now, as we think about the great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, there is no room for apathy when it comes to the outcome of our mission. Jesus was not apathetic about souls, was he? As he looked over Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those that are sent to you. How many times I would have gathered you as a mother hen does her brood, but you would not. The Apostle Paul was not apathetic about souls. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and pray to God for Israel is their salvation. 
John, the writer of this gospel, is not apathetic. He says, I want you to hear this message and I want you to believe it and be saved. And hear this, your pastors here at First Baptist Keller are not apathetic about the lostness here in Keller, Texas, and we don't want you to be. Now, I'm going to let you know a little secret. Your pastors and I get together every Monday morning, and we do one thing primarily. We talk about all of you. <laughs> and we pray for all of you. And we talk about what pastors do and what our job description is. And we keep coming back to verses like Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, which says, God gave to the church pastors for the equipping of the saints for works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That our job is not to do all the works of ministry. It is to equip all of you to do all the works of ministry. And we set goals sometimes to that end. Um, tangible, measurable things that we can trace your progress. And one of the goals that we set last year when we got together at our retreat is that every member of First Baptist Church of Keller, and last I looked, it's about 2,200 of us, would be able to clearly articulate the gospel message anytime and anywhere. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if, if our mission is the Great Commission to make disciples, we need to be able, every one of us, to communicate the one way that God has given for a person to be made right with Him. So to that end, we have strategies and we have multi-faceted um, strategies. But it begins with the staff. We have come to full agreement, and I want you to know this. Every member of our staff believes what I'm about to tell you over the next five weeks about what the gospel is. And that's the title of this series, What is the Gospel? And we take that to the deacons, and we've been going through a curriculum with them so that all of them can understand and get on the same page. And then we've had classes here on Wednesday night for all of you who want to come, and 60 or 70 of you did. And, and then... The final layer of that is, is this month of sermons in May, where we're going to attempt to answer the question, what is the gospel? We are attempting to equip all of us over the next five weeks to answer that question. So are you interested? Well, good. Um, if you are, and I believe you are, we need you to make a commitment to be here these five Sundays unless you are absolutely providentially hindered. Now, I imagine that some of you are uh, wanting to roll your eyes about now and check out for the next month because you may say something like, Pastor, look, I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. Uh, I, I can articulate the gospel message. Why should I need to be here these five Sundays? Well, I hope that's true. I, I hope that you really can articulate the true gospel message. Well, even if you can, you might learn something in these weeks that might help you be a more effective witness for Christ. Plus... The rest of us who are less experienced and less mature than you would benefit by your presence. So I hope you'll come as well. I stopped assuming that people knew things a long time ago. That was my biggest fear when I started out pastoring at 22, is that I was going to insult people's intelligence by being too basic. And I've learned that's very difficult to do, right? Because we live in a world, even though we are in the bulk of the Bible Belt, it's sometimes hard for us to articulate those things we truly know and believe. I found this out uh, again at my first church. I identified early on in that ministry two young men who I believe had the potential to be deacons. And we started meeting and discipling them and going through the Bible together and did that for weeks and months. And finally the time came around for them to be questioned by the other ordained men in the community about their fitness to serve as leadership in the church. 
And the very first question I never shall forget that was posed to these two men together was, what is the gospel? Well, that was essentially the question. It was said a little different way. It was said, if someone on the street stopped you and says, how can I be saved, what would you say? It's essentially the same question. And, and I sat at the edge of my seat because I knew they were going to knock this one out of the park. We've been talking about this for weeks. And instead, I was met with silence. And then prolonged silence. And then really prolonged silence until I started getting nervous. And they started putting their head down and scratching their head and shuffling their feet. And I thought, what has gone wrong here? Someone say something. And finally, one of them did, and I wish they hadn't. <laughs> the spokesman for the two says, if someone stopped me on the street and said, how can I be saved? I'd call Brother Keith. Well, that's the wrong answer. Every one of us, not just the pastors, should be ready and able to share the gospel message in an economy of words. And that's our unabashed goal for all of you is that you could do that at the end of this sermon series. Well, what does gospel mean? Let's start there. That's, that's very basic. It's like a football coach that was disappointed in um, his team's performance. By the way, not preaching this because I'm disappointed in any, anyone. I just know we need to hear it over and over. But this football coach was disappointed with his team's progress and came to practice Monday afternoon after a particularly bad game on Friday night. And he said, men, we're going to start over. We're going to get back to the basics. And he reached in a bag and he produced a football and says, this is a football. And that's, that's kind of what we're doing today. We're getting back to the real basics of the gospel. So let's define what we mean by the word gospel. The Greek word euangelion, where we get a lot of English words, the end of it, angelos, where we get the word angel, which means messenger. There were a number of angels like Gabriel who brought good news to people. The prefix eu, you in our English language means good. A euphemism is a word that's a better word than the one you had intended to use, right? It's a good word. Uh, we had a funeral here yesterday, and a friend of the deceased gave a eulogy, a good word about the deceased. And so euangelion is a good message. It's, it's a proclamation of good news. And I love to give good news, don't you? Makes you real popular when you're always telling people good news. Unfortunately, as a pastor, I've had to give my share of bad news calls in the middle of the night that you don't want to make and visits that you don't want to uh, make. But that's part of it. But I also get to tell the good news all the time, that Jesus died for sinners. And it's not just for the pastors. All of us have been given, as it were, the keys to the kingdom. The, the news, the way, the, the one and only means by which God has in his sovereignty ordained that lost people could be made right with himself. And that really is the definition of, of gospel. How lost dying people can be restored to their creator God. Now the good news is only good news if you believe you need it, right? That you need to be made right with the holy God. So how do we know that? Why do we say with such confidence that Jesus is the answer to life's questions? And it is. I said in that funeral yesterday something I say quite often from this pulpit is that Christians, more than any group of people in the world, have the right answers to life's most important questions. I think sometimes when I say that, it comes across as arrogant. It's not intended to be. But it's, it comes across as arrogant because our culture has conditioned us to believe that it's okay to have convictions about truth so long as you don't say those are exclusive truth claims. 
You hear people say something like, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. Well, if those two things aren't the same thing, one of us is wrong. <laughs> At least one of us is wrong, right? Because there's truth. There's not your truth and my truth. And so what we teach and believe here is that the gospel, the good news message, is based on God's revealed truth in the Bible. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to attempt to answer four sub-questions to that first one. And we're following a guy by the name of Greg Gilbert's little book that many of you have gone through his little book. It's 134 pages long. We've used it as a curriculum here to teach evangelism. And at the end of this month, every family in our church is going to receive this book as a gift, and we want you to read it. But at the end of the study, um, you're going to be able to answer four fundamental questions about the gospel. Question number one, who made us humans, and to whom are we accountable? Well, that answers one of life's greatest questions, doesn't it? How did we get here? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He goes on to create all of the plant life. Uh, all of the animal life, the flora and the fauna, and then his ultimate creation on the sixth day is man, to have dominion over the earth that God has created. Second question, why are we as humans in trouble? I found it easier and easier in the last few years to convince lost people that humanity is in trouble. <laughs> all we have to do is turn on the television, read a newspaper. Why, did we, why are we in this predicament? Why is there so much pain and trouble and violence in the world? Well, Genesis again tells us God created a perfect environment for man, gave him one rule, he broke it. Because he broke it, God placed a sin curse on earth and on all humanity. And we are born, every one of us, with a death sentence. That's why we're in trouble. Third question, what is God's solution to our sin's problem? The answer to that is he sent Jesus, didn't he? To live a perfect life and die in our place on, on the cross. And then the final question is, how does a person, any individual, come to be included in that plan of salvation? And that calls for a response. And what we teach here is that the only way to heaven is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So you put all those questions together, you can answer each one of them in one word. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? God. Why are we in trouble? Man, what is God's solution to our problem? Christ, how do I come to be included in this salvation response of faith and repentance? Now, we started last August studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. And did you notice that in the very first four chapters of Romans, these four questions are answered? In chapter 1, Paul says the world is in such a problem and it's going this way, not upward. It's declining because of sin, and we are accountable to God, and one day he'll hold us accountable and judge us. Uh, what is God's solution? It's Christ, justification by faith in Christ alone. And how do I become included? Well, the clearest statement of that is not in the first four chapters, but in chapter 10, which we'll get to in the fall, verse 9 and 10, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But it's not just a Pauline literature. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even though they had slightly nuanced differences in emphasis, were attempting to answer these same questions. But it's bigger than that. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Indeed, all of the Bible is a testimony of God's eternal redemptive plan of redemption through Christ. 
That's not me just saying that. That's not just your pastors agreeing on that. That's what the doctrinal statement of the entire Southern Baptist Convention declares. Listen to the very first article of your Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation to himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end. And so we declare that the reason God has given us the Bible is to answer the question, how to be saved. Truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. Now hear this last sentence. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So the reason we teach verse by verse here through long books of the Bible is not so that you can win a philosophical debate down at the greasy spoon. It's not so you can win a game of Bible trivial pursuit with your family. The reason we preach through the books of the Bible is because every chapter and every page points to Jesus Christ. The gospel is revealed by God in his holy word. And because that's true, it verifies what Paul declared that I talked about on Easter Sunday is that even the great Greek philosophers couldn't figure out a way to heaven. And the greatest philosophers and greatest scientists in our advanced culture today will never figure out how to get to heaven. They can't figure out because they don't know. It's hidden from them. Only God can reveal it, and he will and has revealed it to a lost and dying world through his word. Secondly, the gospel is attested to by miracles and witnesses. Again, we saw on Easter Sunday, Paul said that the Jews, his own people, stumbled over the gospel. It was a stumbling block to them because they were seeking after signs. People today are still seeking after signs. They're looking for some religious experience. They're looking for some epiphany that makes life make sense. And look, I'll be the first to admit, the gospel comes with plenty of signs. The virgin birth of Jesus was predicted by Isaiah 800 years before it actually happened. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he did verifying signs and wonders. He healed the sick. He walked on the water. He calmed the sea. My goodness, the day he was baptized, God the Father spoke in an audible voice from heaven in the presence of perhaps hundreds of people and declared, behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm not diminishing signs and wonders. I'm just saying that Jesus said the greatest sign is the sign of Jonah. And that was the last one he gave. Remember, Jonah was a prophet who was sent to Nineveh to declare judgment. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. He wanted them to be judged by God. So he got on a boat going the opposite direction. God caused a storm. They threw him overboard to calm the storm. A great fish had been prepared to swallow Jonah. He spent three days in there and God caused the fish to spit him up on dry land and then he went to Nineveh. Jesus says there's coming another sign like that. He spoke of his own death and burial and resurrection three days later. 
And the resurrection we celebrated on Easter is the ultimate sign that God the Father approves of and is pleased with the sacrifice of his son. And so, yes, the gospel is attended with miracles, but also with with witnesses. You see, after God spoke, according to Hebrews 1, long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, many ways, in these last days he has spoken in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the world. And so there are a group of people in the Old Testament that proclaimed there was coming a Messiah. We call them prophets. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he walked and talked here on planet earth, all together God and all together man. And he healed thousands of people and tens of thousands of people heard him teach and hundreds of people saw him ascended in his resurrected body into heaven. And those people went out and told other people who told other people. And that's why we're here today is that for 2000 years, faithful Christians have been witnesses. In fact, right before he ascended into heaven, Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we would not classify ourselves today as prophets. We wouldn't classify ourselves today as apostles, but we have the full canon of scripture and God uses every day common people like you and me to perpetuate the gospel message to the next generation. He said, Pastor, I don't know how to be a witness. Well, there's three ways you can be a witness for Jesus, as I understand it. I know some of you have been following a celebrity trial on television, though I won't ask you to raise your hand if you have. There have been several kinds of witnesses called to the stand. Number one was a character witness. Old friends from childhood were brought to the stand to say, this person's a solid citizen. You can trust them. What they tell you is true. Well, we can be character witnesses for Jesus and, you know, be a good neighbor, keep our grass mowed and take our trash can back to the garage twice a week. We don't want to do things that alienate a lost and dying world by our obnoxiousness, but that's not really sharing the gospel, is it? The gospel's not being just a good neighbor. If it were, our Mormon friends in Utah have it way over us being witnesses. Two, uh, we can be expert witnesses. Sometimes an expert in a particular field would be called to the stand and give their expert opinion based on their education and experience. And I know people in our church who are expert witnesses for Jesus. That is, if if, uh, I start a verse, they can finish it. If I say, where's this verse in the Bible, they can tell it. They have almost photographic memory. But, but I hasten to say, that's not really sharing the gospel either. Just knowing a lot of facts and being able to regurgitate verses and knowing and giving intellectual assent to historical facts is not sharing the gospel either. What is the very best kind of witness when it comes to any courtroom? An eyewitness, right? Someone who experienced something of note that has prescience on the issue at hand. Well, um, for all of us who've been born again, we don't have to get in a time machine to be eyewitnesses of Jesus. No, we haven't seen him physically, but we have been transformed by him. We have been born again and we have something to say. And that something to say is very similar to what the blind man Jesus healed had to say when they pressed him about his relationship with Jesus. All I know, I once was blind, but now I see, right? I used to be on my way to hell, but now I'm on my way to heaven. Now that's not to say that our life is perfect and pain-free. That's not the gospel either. 
The gospel is that my blind eyes were opened and now I see and I've been restored to my creator, God. All of us need to be able to be witnesses for Jesus Christ because, and this is our final point, the gospel is life-giving. If we believe what we say to believe about our neighbors and friends who don't know Jesus in this community, we have to come to terms that when they die, they're going to spend eternity in hell. They're dead in trespasses and sins, even as we were before we were saved. And if we believe the gospel message is life-giving, we dare not remain silent. We can't be apathetic or even ambivalent about the power of the gospel. So here's the most important thing, I think, from a human perspective about the gospel. It gives life and eternal life. Here again, John 20, 31. John said, these things, that is, these miracle signs that Jesus did, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, great. That's wonderful to have intellectual assent to Jesus is the Messiah. But you know who else believes Jesus is the Messiah? The devil. Doesn't make him saved. Remember when Jesus was walking this earth? You know who the best theologians who had the clearest understanding of who he was? The demons. <laughs> Not the Pharisees. Jesus would come along to a demon and they would recognize him immediately and the Pharisees didn't know who he was. It's not enough to give intellectual assent to facts, but it is essential. It's not the only thing, but it's at least that much. You have to know some facts to have a relationship with Jesus. You have to know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God, God in the flesh, and that he died for sinners on the cross. And once you know that, then God in his sovereignty through his spirit will grant you the faith to believe. And that believing, you may have life in his name. Belief and faith are interchangeable terms. The definition of faith is believing the promises of God. But when we say we believe in Jesus, again, that is not just saying we believe that 2,000 years ago there was a, name, a man by the name of Jesus that walked this planet and did some good things. No. It's believing in his name, John says. Now what does that mean? Well, the Old Testament says that a good name is more valuable than silver, gold, precious stones. Your name in the Bible was not just the letters that formed a word. It was who you are at your core. It included and encompassed everything you were and everything you believed and everything you did in your life. And that's what we're calling people is not to just believe some facts about Jesus, but to believe on Jesus. That is to put their weight of their soul and their eternity and their trust not on anything except the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you go out to share your faith in this community or any other in this modern world, this will be the point of greatest resistance. Most people are okay with the Jesus who is harmless and helpless and a peace lover and a defender of the poor and the weak. They are not comfortable with a Jesus that makes demands on their life. Who holds them into account for the decisions and the actions of their life. Who ultimately judges them as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so when we tell the gospel message, it's not complete until we tell them the bad news. We all love to tell good news. And sometimes we truncate and we abbreviate the gospel message with words, well-meaning words like these. Hey, friend, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Where do you want to sign up? 
because we know people don't like bad news. But the good news, as I said earlier, is not good news until we understand the bad news. The bad news is that we are descendants of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we, like they, are sinners. Because we're sinners, we are born with a death sentence. And we're separated from God who is holy and without sin. And unless he does something to change it, that's going to be our eternal condition. Good news. He has done something to change it. He sent Christ into the world who took on flesh in the womb of a virgin, who was born as men and women are born. He grew up tempted in every way that we are. He went to the Christ, to the cross, sinless and holy, to take the punishment that we deserve. He died a literal death, and on the third day, he literally rose again bodily, and after 40 days, he ascended into heaven, and one day, he's coming again. <laughs> and you can get in on that by giving up everything else you're trusting in. Jesus talked about the way to heaven. He talked about a narrow path and a small gate. I, I envision it as a turnstile. You can't go through a turnstile with your hands full of luggage, can you? You can't go through 10 at a time. You have to go in singularly with empty hands and empty pockets, nothing to offer on his terms. And then when you get on the road that leads to heaven, it's hard. The songwriter says it's full of dangers, toils, and snares. And he's right. It's not an easy path. And if we tell people, here's the gospel. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Say these words after me. Here's your ticket to an easy life. We have lied. It's not the gospel. We want you to tell the gospel clearly and succinctly, but we want you to tell the full gospel. That we owe allegiance to our creator, and he's God. The reason the world is in the mess that it's in is us. Man, he has sinned and he continues to sin. God has made a way and it's one way to be reconciled to him. And that is through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And now the way that you can appropriate that is one way by faith alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. If you can answer those four questions, you can share the gospel with anyone in the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and the simplicity of the gospel. Now, Father, on one hand, it's simple. Even a child can understand it as we saw this one baptized this morning. But Father, many have stumbled over it through the years and continue to because they want to add to it. They want to do something that would earn your forgiveness. Father, as long as a person has that attitude, they cannot and will not be saved. We have to come on your terms in humility and contrition through faith and repentance. It's the only way to appropriate this salvation. And Father, I pray through the next four weeks after this one that we would examine these four questions and their answers and that every member of this church could clearly and succinctly answer those questions to anyone who asks what is the gospel Lord would you do that not so we can check off a goal we've accomplished but so the people around us would hear the good news message of Jesus Christ and be saved Lord we're not apathetic about whether or not they're saved with Paul we say our heart's desire our prayer to God for Keller Texas and the surrounding communities is that they would be saved. 
Set us on fire for your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.